Hello, everyone, and welcome to Vet the Unexpected, a veterinary podcast by students for students. I'm your Chicagoan host, Amelia, and today it is just going to be me. So sorry you are stuck with me, (laughs) but we will be joined by someone that has been on the show before, Kate Brown. And we have been getting a lot of emails asking us about the ins and outs of applying to vet school. So Kate and I have gone ahead and collected all of those questions that you guys have been asking, and we're kind of just going to go for that here. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and hop online with her. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode today. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you back. I haven't gotten to chat with you much this summer since exams finished up, so it's nice to be back in a shared space via a Zoom. Absolutely. (laughs) So today we kind of wanted to talk to you guys about not necessarily vet med as a career, but just getting into vet school in general, because we do have a lot of pre-vet listeners and I have been getting some emails about what it's like to apply to vet school and kind of all the ins and outs of getting in and what's expected of you. So we're just going to kind of chat through all that today, if that's okay with you, Kate. Of course. I am a big fan of giving advice to people who were in our shoes just a few years ago, because we know how stressful it was. You know, and it is a very stressful thing to apply to vet school. And there's so much that you don't know and you don't know what you don't know, you know. So if we can alleviate any of that, I'm happy to happy to do that. I mean, everyone who goes to vet school is trying to be in the top of their class. And when you're missing those pieces of information, that can just be very frustrating and stress inducing. So if we can relieve any stress, that is, I consider that a win. <laughs> yes. And you and I are kind of in two interesting positions because like we've said in previous episodes, I applied early to vet school and you applied after you graduated and spent some time doing something else. Yeah, we both are um, not even non-traditional, but just not the um, really straightforward traditional apply summer between your junior and senior year, find that you got in your senior year and then go straight to vet school. You know, I think that's maybe the majority of people do that doesn't quite feel like a majority but that's the most like standard route the other thing is and I know in talking to some of the admissions people when I was kind of going through the application ringer most students don't get in until their second cycle of applications which is something that I feel like isn't talked about a lot so it's definitely not something where if you were to not get in on your first try that that means that you're just not a candidate you know? Yeah, I think it's on average between two and three cycles is how many people apply. And I know there are people that have it taken several cycles to reapply and get in. Um, and just for some general advice for anyone who is in that position, I think the most important thing to do is make sure that you update your application and you have something to bring to the table that's different the next time you apply. So if your GPA, for example, is low, try to take some extra classes, try to bring that up. If you don't have a lot of experience, try to get some more shadowing experience. Even if you are, if you get feedback that you're really close, but you're not just there, don't just reapply on the chance that next time the cards will fall in your favor. You really need to be working on continually improving your application and making sure that you're making progress because that's how you will get admitted. That's true. And kind of on the vein of getting more experience, what kind of things did you have on your resume when you were applying that counted under like the animal experience category? And do you have any suggestions for students looking to bulk up theirs? For sure. So um, for my personal experience, I had a big chunk of shadowing that I did actually in high school. I think I had like 400 hours shadowing a small animal practice. That was just me as a little little baby wee vet, um, just following the vet around, learning from the tech, figuring out what it was like to be a vet, all that fun stuff. Um, I had a day with a dairy vet. I had um, uh, some, I don't think I had equine actually uh, on my resume at all, other than my mom's own courses. So I think that ended up in there somewhere, but you can't really count personal pet ownership as experience. And then I had a internship at an exotic animal sanctuary where I worked as a keeper. So there are 
uh, and that was oh gosh hundreds of hours because I worked there for I think 10 weeks um so that also might have come out to be about 400 hours and there's a delineation between animal husbandry experience and veterinary experience so animal husbandry experience is you take care of animals you work in a kennel you work at a shelter you work at a sanctuary something like that and you're taking care of animals but you're not explicitly involved in their veterinary care and then veterinary experience is where you're under the supervision of a veterinarian you also can get that at a shelter a lot of shelters have um in-house veterinarians um, or at a veterinary practice and you're basically learning the veterinary side of animal care um, and different schools a lot of schools don't have cutoffs at all they just say tell us what your animal experience is some will require a certain number of hours i think some schools require 200 hours something like that and my general advice would be to try to get as broad an experience as possible but don't stress if you don't have one particular thing it's better to have in my personal opinion have one longer running experience where you really develop a relationship with a vet practice um, and then have some other things sprinkled in there um, but different schools look for different things if you're applying for a school that has different tracks I think it makes sense to and you want to do for example large animal it makes sense to have large animal experience if you want to do small animal it makes sense to have small animal experience but it's also a great opportunity to really make sure that this is what you want to do and get a idea of what it's like to be a vet because you don't want to go through school and then at the end of it realize oh this is more paperwork than i thought or you know i don't really have the temperament or inclination for this particular subgenre of veterinary medicine um, and it gives you some time to really do some long-term planning and correct course i think does that make sense I don't disagree because my experience was it's I had a, some small animal practice experience in there and I had some exotic animal private practice experience in there and then I did I had some like international work that I had done as well and so that was a combination of wildlife large animal and small animal but I never I mean when the, some of the work that I did was largely with like big antelope and cattle species and like technically bovids so I had kind of large animal but I never did any of like the traditional dairy practice or anything along those lines and I think that you often hear that vet schools want the diversity and they want in particular large animal experience I feel like that was something that was said to me by a lot of people and that was something that I was really worried about on my application because I didn't really technically have large animal experience. Working with a large animal is not the same as working with a cow. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, well, like yeah. my experience yeah, with elephants yeah. doesn't count as a large animal experience. Right. Just because it's a large animal doesn't mean that it <laughs> falls under the same umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like that was something that I was really worried about. But when I actually went to the interviews that I had, there was less emphasis on that and more emphasis on what I took away from the experiences or like, what was a challenging thing that I encountered and like, how would I change the way that I handled that and change it in the future? And I feel like, obviously, like you already said, all the vet schools look for different things. Every single school has their own criteria. Some schools still do the weird algorithm where they take your GPA and multiply it by your hours of animal experience. And then you get a score and the score tells you somewhere in the admissions ranking. But nowadays, a lot more schools are really taking into consideration your overall interests and not so much what the raw numbers are. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience of applying to vet school and the steps that you went through and all that? Sure. So when I applied, I wasn't really expecting to get in because I did apply a year early and the vet that I had been working with who suggested that was a small animal practitioner. And his point in telling me to apply early was that most students do take more than one cycle to get in. So this is kind of like a practice run, if you will. And so I didn't really talk 
to people much about applying because I really wasn't sure. Like I didn't think that I was going to get in. So I was just kind of doing it quietly. Um, but obviously you fill out the VMCAS application, which is the online application portal. And it's almost like the common app for the 2638 yeah. at schools, however many there are. And then from there, there's always, most schools have like a supplemental application. And I decided to take the GRE because a couple of the schools that I was applying to had required that at the time. And then when I applied, and I guess when you applied as well, they had just switched the requirement from being one huge personal essay to five or six short one or two paragraph essays, which I really liked because I felt like it gave me more of an opportunity to explain who I was as a person. But so you finished submitting your application in August. And then I think I started getting information about interviews by November, December. Does that sound right to you? I think I actually got my acceptance to Glasgow. International schools send out acceptances earlier than stateside schools. And I think I actually got my acceptance to Glasgow in mid-December. So I think interviews for international schools were a little bit before that and for stateside schools were a little bit after that. I do think that that's right because I think my interview for Glasgow was definitely in November and then I heard back a few weeks later about getting in. And when I went to Thailand shortly thereafter, I canceled a couple of interviews that I had been offered for state schools in the spring because I had decided that I wanted to go to Glasgow. So I didn't want to take interview opportunities away from other people. Out of curiosity, how many schools did you apply to? I applied to four. Gotcha. How many did you? Uh, I believe 17. Because oh for God. me, I think I think there's sort of a difference here between you were doing sort of a practice run, right? Yeah. I was doing a, I really only want to have to do this one. And I was not picky about where I ended up. I only applied to schools that A, I had the prerequisites for because I wasn't going to waste I think each application is somewhere around $100. So this was not an inexpensive endeavor. Let me tell you. I think it's more expensive than that. (laughs) It might be. Yeah. Um, Don't quote me on that. Um, But I I had help from my family with the applications and I had some savings from my job. And I kind of just said, you know what? We're all in. Let's do this. Um, And I applied to... How many international schools did I apply to? I applied to RCBS. I applied to Glasgow, Edinburgh. I don't think I had the requirements for Dublin. I applied to Prince Edward Island and then a whole bunch, I think 13 or 14 stateside schools. And that's something I wouldn't necessarily recommend to other people because, first of all, most people will be looking at their in-state schools. So because tuition is much cheaper if you're in-state and some places have programs where if you're in certain states, you can get cheaper tuition. It also, if you know that you want to do large animal or you want to do exotics, there are specific schools that have better programs for that. But for me, I just knew I wanted to be a vet and I really wanted to get in and I cast as wide a net as I could. And it was not necessarily something I'd recommend for other people, but if you have the funding for it and you feel like you have a strong application, it's not a terrible option. When you did all those applications, what would you say was the percentage of interview offers that you had? Let's see. I got, well, here's the thing is some schools have GPA cutoffs and that's where my application was weakest. Um, I think my overall GPA was a 3.1 or 3.2 because my undergrad GPA was a 3.0 and then I went back and took classes after that to meet requirements for vet school and I think my GPA there was a 3.8 or a 3.9 so it kind of still was a lower average. Some schools will look at your most recent 40 credits and calculate your GPA from that so my GPA there was very good but some schools will reject you out of hand with a lower overall GPA. So I think the interviews I got offered were The interviews that I did were Glasgow, Prince Edward Island, and RCBS. And every school that I interviewed at, I got into. 
So I got into those three. I also got offered, I think I got waitlisted for Colorado. And I think I got, I got waitlisted for Tufts, which was my in-state school at the time, which is the school with the closest total tuition for in-state students anyway. Very expensive school. Good school, but expensive. And I got an interview offer for, I don't remember, Midwestern maybe? One of, there's sort of a, it's one of the newer programs. Um, so how many is that? Six interviews offered. Um, and I only, I did the international one first. I got my Glasgow acceptance. I got, and, and RCBS and PEI. And then decided I wanted to go to Glasgow. So similar to you, I also turned down interview offers for stateside schools. I feel like based on all the people that I've talked to, it's usually about 50%, 50% get interview offers, depending on the number of schools that you apply to. I think that my choice of applying to four schools was probably what I would recommend to other people. Yeah. Like I wouldn't recommend doing just your in-state school, but I also wouldn't recommend I agree. Yeah, doing every single school just because it is so expensive. Because I think on my five schools, my total cost for just applications was somewhere around eight or nine hundred dollars. Like it was really expensive. It is really expensive. I think mine was somewhere between two and three thousand. That's a lot of money, you know, yeah. especially if you have to take out loans. Like I was lucky. I if I didn't have financial support from my parents, I wouldn't have done that, you know. Yeah. But I also was kind of looking at it from a perspective of, well, if I only apply to a few schools and I don't get in and then I have to apply next time, I'm going to be spending a lot of money on applications. So it was kind of balancing that out. And, you know, it, it worked out well, I guess. But yeah, not necessarily something I'd recommend to other people. And I totally agree about not putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, if there's only one school that you can get into and like you want to live at home or something like that, there are extenuating circumstances, but you really are limiting your chances if you're only applying to your stateside school. I definitely agree. And I think we should also maybe mention the fact that every vet school stateside has generally requirements for the number of in-state and the number of -of out-of-state students that they admit. So Usually it's about 50% in state, 50% out of state. So it is always a good idea to apply to your in-state school. I chose not to because my in-state school was the University of Pennsylvania and their tuition was just so high that I was, I knew that I wouldn't be able to afford going there. So I chose not to apply because even for in-state, I think it's right behind Tufts for difference between in-state yeah. and out-of-state because it was still something along the lines of $63,000 a year starting my first year. And you know, in the U.S., tuition goes up always. So I was like, I don't think that that's right. going to work for me. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's something when you're looking at what schools to apply to, you want to look at your prerequisites. You want to look at the program that they offer and make sure that they are aligning with what you're interested in. And tuition is such a huge thing. Look at cost of living, look at in-state versus out-of-state. And as you said, it's really important to look at that admissions ratio because I think Texas A&M, it's like 95% of their student body is in-state students. And having said that, I knew someone when I went to UMass who got into Texas A&M as a Massachusetts resident. So it's not that it's 100%, but your chances of getting in there are much lower as an out-of-state student than it would be somewhere else. Yes. And I did go ahead and look at the AAVMC website earlier this morning and it ranging from school to school, Florida had the lowest applicant to acceptance ratio of about one and a half to one. So one and a half applicants for every acceptance. And then Purdue and Washington state had the highest with somewhere over 16 applicants for every one seat available. So there is like, it is a range across the schools too. And it's not a reflection of their program in any way, shape or form either. I think that that's something else that some vet students get really into is, oh, well, what school did you go to? And every school that is certified is great. And you are extremely lucky and intelligent to be able to get into wherever you've gotten into. So 
go wherever you want and find the program that's right for you. Yeah. And actually speaking about that, do you want to talk a little bit about Caribbean schools and what schools are accredited and which aren't and sort of your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So obviously in the Caribbean, there's St. George and Ross. Am I, those are the two that I'm really well aware of. The one that I know the most about is Ross, but yeah, those are the, those are the two that I'm familiar with. Yes. So I do believe that those are the two that are accredited and in that regard, they're fine schools. I don't, I don't have any qualms with their education. The only thing that I wish they would be more forthright about, especially Ross, I don't know as much about St. George's program, is obviously Ross does a year-round program and you finish in under four years. I think you finish in three or three and a half-ish. But Ross is a for-profit private school, essentially. Correct. And so it has very steep tuition prices compared to some of the U.S. schools. And at that, if you fail a class at Ross, you have to essentially retake the whole semester, which Mm -hmm. since their tuition prices are so steep is just really challenging. So the education is great. And everyone that I've met who's graduated from Ross has had a great time, especially since your final year there, you get to switch to rotations at a U.S. school, usually of your choice. You'd still have to apply for it, but it's usually competitive, but not so competitive that you can't get your first or your second choice for that. But my only qualm with the Caribbean schools is the price tag, but I guess that's really a personal qualm with all that schools, in my opinion. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that there is sort of a stigma to Caribbean schools. I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen people saying, you know, well, if I can't get any in anywhere, I'll just go to Ross, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, there still are admission standards. And um, for pre-vet students, they might not know about the um, license requirements for vets so once you graduate from vet school in the states or your last year you have to take the NABLE which is the North American Veterinary Licensing Exam as international students we're in Glasgow we're at an ABMA accredited school um, but we also still take the NABLE and if you go to Ross you also take the NABLE and if you can pass that exam you're going to be a vet and you're going to be a good vet you know um, yes. And I also second what you said about, you know, every vet that I've worked with who's been to Ross or, or known anyone who's gone to Ross has gotten a good education. Um, and, but it is expensive. And I, I, my general impression of the program is that you may find yourself doing slightly more self-directed study than you would at other schools. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not going to be an easy ride, but vet school never is. So. Which, I mean, the same can almost be said about Glasgow's program, because if you think about our program, the way that it's run, it is more self-directed, but intentionally, like it's not, it's not out of laziness of the school by any means. I mean, we've had several conversations with advisors who their whole thing is, well, it's going to have to be self-directed study for the rest of your life. So our whole point is trying to encourage you to be willing to look things up on your own. I mean, professors are always there to answer questions and help you out and they're happy to help. But like, I know this year coming up, we do have one module that is completely self-directed for no other reason than the intent is that we gain more personal research skills. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Yeah. So long story short, the Caribbean schools are great and all international schools are great. If you find a school that's ABMA accredited that you like, you're in the clear because that means that you can still take the Navali and you will be a U.S. vet when you graduate. And that is all that matters. Yep. There are no bad ABMA accredited vet schools. Yes. A vet is a vet. A vet is a vet is a vet is a vet. (laughs) So do you recall of the vet schools that you applied to, what kind of were the criteria for admissions and how each school was weighted differently on what they thought was the most important criteria? Yeah, so there's no like handbook of, well, some schools will say 
anyone with a GPA below a 3.0 or below a 2.8 is automatically rejected. Look at your look at the prerequisites. Don't apply if you don't meet those because there are auto rejects. But different schools value different things. Sometimes you can get a sense of that from the description of the school, from what they put online. I think AVMA has a guide for that. Um, and also just in speaking with people from admissions, depending on the school, you can reach out to admissions counselors. Some won't, some are overloaded, but some will be more communicative in that respect. So some schools value experience, some schools value GPA, some schools value um, also test scores. We can talk a little bit about the GRE, which is a fun time. I also took the GRE because some schools uh, required it. I believe some schools also accept the MCAT, but I think that's really being phased out. I don't know if that's still the case. And some schools really look for a well-rounded application and sort of interesting people. I think that Glasgow might be one of those schools that is interested in a more diverse applicant pool or student body as opposed to 4.0 GPA, hundreds of hours of experience, like perfect across the board, which some schools do look for. So really, uh, I would, my advice would be to play to your strengths if your academics are not um, perfect, then try to make up for that with shadowing hours with a good personal essay. Um, some schools have interesting prerequisites. I, out of sort of a um, point of stubbornness, refused to apply anywhere that um, required a public speaking course because I was out of undergrad. I was taking animal science classes and I was like, I have worked an office job for two years. I have been running meetings on my own. I don't need to pay thousands of dollars for three credits to show on my transcripts that I could public speak. That is what an interview is for. Thank you. So I didn't, I didn't apply to a couple of schools because of that. But generally, in science classes, mostly, you know, you'll, you'll have to look based on the schools that you want to apply to what specific courses are required. But generally, that's the case. That is hilarious. I did take public speaking because I was an undergrad. And when I had to sign yeah. up for it, I was livid because... I mean, oh, no. I, I was like, this is a waste of my time. I'm luckily I've never really had an issue with public speaking. And so I was so annoyed because I was sitting there. I had to take a night class because that was the only class that fit in with the rest of my schedule. So I was in downtown Chicago from like eight to 10 PM every Wednesday to prove that I could public speak. Yes. I, that's, that's a personal little bee in my bonnet, but yeah, some schools do require that. I think it's silly, but if you want to go to one of those schools, you'll have to take public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of on the same vein of your personal essay, how did you pick the people that you had write your letters of reference for you? Because that's a big thing too. You really do need some good reference letters. Definitely. Um, I had my program advisor from my undergrad write me a letter. I had the supervising keeper at the uh, place I did an internship write me a letter. And then I had my uh, former boss for my office job where I worked for two years um, as it was at a pharmaceutical company. So it was speaking more to my um, uh interpersonal and writing strength rather than anything veterinary related. But I chose people that I had worked with for a serious period of time, as opposed to like, I wasn't going to ask the dairy vet that I spent a day with um, to write me a letter of reference. I think that uh, if you are in undergrad, having one reference that is not a teacher is a good idea, especially if it's someone who can speak to your veterinary experience, you should have shadowing hours and ideally multiple multiple shadowing hours, like a long period at one place so that they really can speak to your character and your motivation and all that fun stuff. What about your reference letters? For me, I had three vets write me reference letters. I had more of an issue finding, not finding a professor to write me a letter, but I just didn't have huge relationships with my professors. I 
didn't really go to a lot of office hours or anything like that. But I wound up having my physics teacher write me a letter, which I was worried about because a lot of people that I was, was talking to recommended having one of your quote unquote, more hard science teachers, like a chemistry or a biology professor. But I just wasn't really close with any of them. And my physics professor and I really got along and it was her first time teaching a physics class and she was getting a lot of really bad reviews sent to the physics director about her class because students were saying that it was too hard and I think she flunked like 70% of the class in the first few weeks <laughs> which might have I been mean, too hard but <laughs> I mean but it, it was like the first time that I had ever done well in a physics class because the way that she explained things made sense to me so I wound up sending her this long email saying like thank you because I, this is the first time that I've ever understood physics and then she emailed me back and was like, thank you for this email. I've literally been sobbing in my office for the past four days because Aww. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. So it wound up, Aww. that was a tangent that was unnecessary, but uh, so she, she wrote mine for me. And then otherwise I just had vets. I had, they were all small animal practitioners though. I didn't have anyone from exotics write me anything. Yeah. I think for letters of recommendation, you should have one vet in there. But I think it's more important to have someone who really knows you and is able to speak to what kind of person you are and whether they think you'd be a good bet. They should think that you will be a good bet. If they don't, don't have them write a letter. Um, you definitely should. Um, if you're not sure about your relationship with someone, then it's not appropriate to ask them for a letter. I also, I had a teacher when I was not for vet school, but when I was applying for internship, um, I was taking her anatomy class and I liked her a lot as a teacher, but I didn't really interact with her a lot. And so I said like, hey, could you write me a letter of recommendation? And she was like, I don't really know you well enough to feel comfortable doing that. And I was like, well, that's fair. I understand from your perspective that that's, you don't know me as well as I know you, you know, from sitting in, your, in her class. Um, so uh, anyone who, doesn't feel comfortable writing you a recommendation should tell you that and it hopefully won't come up <laughs> yes and it also definitely doesn't hurt I did this with the people that some of the people that were writing mine that I was in relatively close geographical vicinity to <laughs> I met them for lunch or coffee and kind of talked about what I was hoping they might highlight during the reference letter not saying that they had to but the, they were like memories that I had of working with them that I thought displayed that I would be a good candidate for veterinary school. So definitely if you can think of those people and think of specific instances, see if you can't mention them just because it never hurts. And none of the people that I spoke to were offended that I brought up specific things that I thought highlighted my, my best abilities. I think if I, I didn't do anything like that for any of my references, it was all done via email because I was traveling a lot of the time. But if you do feel comfortable enough to sit down to lunch with someone, I think it's more than appropriate to chat about your time working together. And so it also helps. It honestly makes less work for them because you're sort of jogging their memory and giving them some people I know will also say, you write your letter of recommendation, send it to me, I'll edit it and sign it. And which is a, a lot of pressure because then you have to try to figure out how to be nice to yourself and supportive without trying to not be like overconfident or gassing yourself up too much. Uh, it's a difficult line to walk, but that also is something that people may ask for. That is true. I have had that happen to me in the past and it was, I think it was, I took it way more stressfully than I should have because it took, I should have just taken me one day to do it, but I wound up taking three or four weeks because I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to talk about myself without sounding like, cause I didn't want to sound arrogant, but I also wanted to sound right. good. You know, that's a very fine line. Right. To walk. Right. <laughs> yeah. Plus if you write something, you know, Amelia is the best vet student I've ever met in my life. You know, it's, it's going to come off first for the person reading it, but also if they submit it like that, it's going to come off. It's just kind of not genuine, you know? Yeah, exactly. So you said that you also chose to take the GRE. Is that something that 
you chose just because of the specific schools that you were interested in? Sort of. I also historically have been a very good test taker. I did well on the SAT. I do well on standardized testing. And I knew that it would help improve my application because, again, my GPA was not super competitive. And I did end up doing very well on the GRE. I was in high 90th percentile um, for all of the categories, which I don't even remember now. But if you do find that you're good at taking tests, I would say it's worth it. I only took it once. It is, in my opinion, much easier than the MCAT because it has, it requires a sort of more basic level of knowledge as opposed to higher science and math requirements. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that anyone take the MCAT. I don't know if schools are still accepting it um, in the first place. I know that the GRE is being phased out for some schools, but some schools do still require it. So that's why I took it. I knew I knew I'd do well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's not a bad reason to take it. I know I had purchased GRE study books that I was going to do, and then I didn't do them. And I just showed up and I took it and it was fine. I did, I did well enough to get into vet school and that is all that matters. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I like to become familiar with the format of a test beforehand. And I did some practice exams and stuff like that. Um, so I think that it is, if you find that you don't do well at standardized testing and your school doesn't require it, don't take it. Or you can also take it. If you do poorly, you don't have to put it on your application. So Also very true. Yeah. So when you went to your interviews, you are notoriously a good interviewee. I uh, like how... I like how you phrased that, the notorious interviewee. <laughs> you are. You're very good at uh, interviews. I've seen you public speak, and I've seen you interact with supervisors, and you're always very confident and calm and collected. Do you have any tips you. for students who are heading into interviews and are really nervous? Yeah, I think that if you find yourself getting really nervous in high-stress situations, First of all, that's not a failing. That's a very human reaction. So try not to be too hard on yourself. I also would think, I, I also would recommend that if you can practice, set up lunch dates, set up practice interviews with friends, with maybe people that intimidate you ahead of time so that you can practice being in that in that situation um I also would recommend if you find yourself uh, if you are someone who has a lot of anxiety practice some grounding techniques practice some breathing routines look up some things about uh, dealing with anxiety that might be helpful to you um I'm not gonna you know recommend that everyone has to take up meditation or anything like that but Finding small coping techniques that work for you can really do wonders. Um, and also, you're probably not going to be the most nervous person in that room. The people interviewing you are human. They understand. They want to have a conversation with you. They want to get to know you, but they know that you're going to be slightly nervous. So if you can bring in something small to fidget with, if you find yourself prone to fidgeting, a ring that you can turn, something like that. Um, Something else is if you are going to do practice interviews, record yourself. You might be doing things that you don't even realize that you're doing. When I was, um, I did some public speaking extracurriculars in high school and stuff like that. And uh, one of my fidget things is I would play with my hair, the end of my ponytail. I'd be tucking it behind my ears constantly. And once I realized that I was doing it, I was able to stop it and kind of keep my hands more still. Um, if you do struggle with public speaking, a public speaking course might be helpful to you. As someone who doesn't, I don't want to take it, <laughs> um, but it, it definitely is something that, that uh, can be beneficial. Practice, learn some grounding techniques, and you're going to be fine. They want to talk to you. They want to get to know you. That's what you're there for. You're not there to perform as the best vet student that has ever existed. You are there to give them a sense of your personality. I remember for my RCBS uh, 
interview. It is six stations. They're all little mini stations. One of them, they had Lego sets, and you had to instruct the interviewer in how to put it together based on the instructions, and you couldn't touch anything. I love that. That was a great time. They also had some moral questions, one of which was uh, an owner wants to put down a healthy animal um, or an animal with manageable health problems, and how do you deal with that? And I had a lot of other options and the uh, the interviewer kept saying well you can't do that okay well that's not available that's not available and I think at the end of it I just looked at him and I said well I reject this premise because there's not going to be a scenario where none of these options are available <laughs> I don't recommend yelling at your interviewer but I did get in so um <laughs> that's um maybe maybe disregard that tip but being confident being true to yourself are two things that will carry you very far um my roommate and I both talked in our Glasgow interviews about how we crochet as stress relief you know don't try to be somebody that you're not don't try to say well I like to work with animals as stress relief that's actually the worst thing that you can say because a work-life balance is very important burnout is so high in this profession they want to see that you have other interests they want to see who you are as a person I mean by the time you get to the interview they've already selected a, a relatively small pool of people to consider Absolutely. so at that point you just have to be honest with who you are and more often than not, it'll work out in your favor. Because at that point, if they say no to you after an interview, it's probably just because it, you aren't a good fit with the school and the school isn't a good fit with you. And that's not negative on you and it's not negative on the school. It's just that the way that their program is run is just not going to work well with the way that you learn. Because despite that, all the vet schools are teaching you the same information. They do teach you those things in very different ways, depending on how the programs are set up. So I want to cover the dreaded conversation of student debt, because this is something that I think when you're considering applying to vet school, you know that the education costs something. But I think understanding the debt to income ratio when you graduate is very important. Because unfortunately, financially, for some people, vet school isn't an option right away. And you do have to go and work for a few years before it's you're feasibly going to be able to afford the cost of education. Yeah. So debt is a huge problem, but it is a manageable one. Um, it is not something that you can just put off till later and deal with once you graduate it's something that you should be thinking about and managing as you go through vet school be careful with the loans that you take out be aware of the tuition rates for some schools glasgow in particular our tuition is set for all five years for schools in the state it will increase year on year for most schools factor in your cost of housing factor in your cost of tuition in-state schools are probably going to be cheaper. Some schools are going to be marginally cheaper. As you mentioned, UPenn and Tufts are expensive, whether you're in-state or not. And you will likely be paying off debt for a decade or more after you graduate. It depends on the job that you get and the hours that you work. Some jobs are paid better than others. If you would like to be as close to debt-free as you can, large animal is the way to go because some large animal programs are subsidized. You can get scholarships. There is a huge lack of large animal vets in the States, so and actually worldwide, I believe. Um, so some programs are um, subsidized. You can get scholarships. You can get grants. And you, regardless of what field you go into, you will find a job. That is not a question. There are vets, vets are needed everywhere right now. And that's not going to change even in the next 10, 20 years, I don't think. It just is a matter of managing your debt, paying it off. Financial literacy is really important. 
be smart with your money just because you can take out a certain amount of money for loans don't take out more than you need because the interest on it will be rough and try to make more than the minimum payments once you do graduate it can be difficult it is a challenge for a lot of people but it is manageable from my perspective do you have anything to add to that Amelia? Uh, I did want to briefly mention the fact that uh, since we're talking about kind of subsidized programs and the fact that some large animal programs are subsidized, also not that it was something that I really had a lot of interest in, but the U.S. Army does have a vet program where they will pay for all of your vet school and you will come out as an officer. It's almost like an ROTC program, but for vet school. And they also give you a monthly stipend to spend on housing and books. So it wasn't something that I had interest in because it largely revolves around small animal things. However, I think it's a program that not many people know about in relation to the amount of people that could, given that a lot of people graduating do have interest in small animals. So just keep that in mind. Did you have to work for the army after that, to be clear? But yes, for four will, years. Yes, yes. They will pay for your education. Yes. Yes, I should have said that. I mean, I, I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> yes, that is very, that that's a fair point. Um, but on top of that, I think it's a matter of, like you said, it's manageable, but I also don't think that students coming out of school should make that their only priority paying back student loans because I think that's also a recipe for burnout because then you're going to be the person who on top of doing your job is going to pick up the four extra shifts a week at the ER which is all fine and good and great that you can pay off your loans faster but if it makes you fall out of love with the profession within your first two years of graduating, I don't think that it's worth it. So I think that the best plan is to, like you said, try and pay more than the minimum monthly payments, but also be realistic with yourself and really check in and make sure that the cost of working those extra shifts isn't impacting your mental health and physical health, you know? I agree totally. And also, if you look at if it takes you 10 years to well, if it takes you, let's say eight years to pay off your debt, working full throttle, and then you burn out and switch to something else, you're likely not going to be doing as well financially if it takes you 15 years to pay off your debt, and then you work for another 25 as a vet, you know, it, you really have to and that goes even if you don't have debt, be kind to yourself burnout in this profession is very real and you you have to put yourself first. I completely agree. I think this is always a hard topic because technically we're not graduated yet and so we don't we can only speak to what we understand about debt and the fact that the two of us are fervently aware of how much our education is costing us despite the fact that Glasgow's program is significantly less expensive than a lot of the U.S. programs are. And we say significantly less expensive. Our tuition is set at 28.5 thousand pounds a year. Um, and that varies a little bit with the uh, exchange rate. That's about 39,000, I think, this year. Compared yeah. to, for example, I think Tufts, Tufts is over 60,000. So it's cheaper. It is not cheap by any means. And that's not including housing. That's just tuition. It's not including housing. It's not including traveling for placements, traveling to Glasgow. It's also a five-year program instead of a four-year program, and it's still cheaper. Yes, which I think the two of us are kind of also in a specific situation where in-state schools were still more expensive than this option. One thing that I, I did want to talk about is undergrad majors, because I think a lot of people have questions about that. Most people that apply have a biology-based major. Biology, sometimes you can do a pre-vet specialization, animal science. Um, some schools have a, a zoo program, zoology, something like that. That's great. You will be able to get your prerequisites done easily. I have an undergrad in chemistry. I believe, Amelia, you were going for a forensic science undergrad. Is that correct? Yep. And you can major in whatever you want to major. In. I think it adds a little color to your application if you aren't just biology. Nothing wrong with a biology degree. You can 
absolutely get into vet school with that. And I think most people do. Um, but if you have other interests, I think that that is fine. As long as you're hitting your prerequisites, you're still eligible. I went to undergrad with a girl who was applying to medical school and she had a philosophy major. There are lots of options. My mom got a drama undergrad and then went to medical school. So don't feel like you have to have a certain major to be a viable candidate. I think it makes you a little bit more interesting if you have something that is not biology. To further that point, I would like to just emphasize that on top of just adding more color to your application, there is literally zero advantage to having your major as pre-vet when applying to veterinary school. There is zero advantage to having your major say biology when you apply because they really only care about the prerequisites. So like you're saying, if you're a philosophy major and you still do the prerequisites, they really don't care. So you're not putting yourself in any type of better situation by choosing one major over another. So definitely, if you have an interest out with science, choose that as your major because it's your education. Do with it what you want, you know? Yep, I totally agree. The only thing I will say is if you are doing a science-based major, your undergrad will be an easier ride. Um, Because I had to go back and take other classes to meet prerequisites. The girl that I knew that did philosophy, I believe, took an extra year of undergrad to rearrange. Or she might have done it in four years, but it was a tough last two years. So it, it can be more difficult if you wanted to get fulfill the requirements for an English major and also do the prerequisites for that school. Um, it's not just as easy as saying that's what you want to do, but it is an option that's available to you. And it certainly doesn't weaken your vet school application. If anything, I think it's right for you. I completely agree. Well, thank you, Kate, so much for joining us to chat about everything vet school application. It is a complicated topic that I'm sure we could spend several more hours discussing the ins and outs of. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode. And thank you for all your questions by email about the process of applying to vet school. It's a very stressful time for everyone. So if we can help you guys out in any other way, please don't hesitate to reach out and email us or message us on Instagram or anything along those lines. That is all that we have for you today. Thank you again so much for listening to Vet the Unexpected, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Go ahead and subscribe, share, and leave a review, and find us at Vet the Unexpected on Facebook, Instagram, and all major podcasting platforms. And as always, if you know of a vet with an interesting career, or if there are any other student topics you're interested in learning more about, please feel free to reach out to us at vettheunexpected at gmail.com. Stay well, and we'll see you next time.